Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Ilana Steinhain in honour of Rabbi Oza Glickman, who passed away a couple of weeks ago. Rabbi Glickman was a larger-than-life figure who impressed upon Ilana the importance of the relationship between the sacred and the mundane. Tractate Chulin is really interesting in its positioning within the order of Mishnayot in general. Chulin means mundane, and it's actually the opposite of the name of the order in which it's found. It's found in the order called Kajim. Kajim means sanctified or sacred. Generally speaking, the order of Kajim is trying to understand the laws surrounding things that are related to the temple to the Mikdash, specifically korbanot, meat offerings, and other offerings as well. But meat's very important. Chulin, on the other hand, is about laws pertaining to meat having nothing to do necessarily with the temple or the Mikdash. It could be just the laws of the meat that I'm gonna eat at my table, which has nothing to do with sacrifice. And so in some way, to have tractate chulin with its laws about slaughter and other things that we'll go into shortly, being relevant to both meat that has to do with my everyday mundane life that is totally unrelated to the mikdash, to the temple, and also equally relevant to food, meat that is prepared for a sacrifice or for consumption by priests or by the giver of the sacrifice afterwards, really make some sort of implicit comparison between the significance of eating in daily life and the significance of divine consumption, so to speak, that would happen in the Mikdash. It really indicates some sort of understanding of eating around my table as something that should be partaking of this larger understanding of worship of the divine in life. Sure, my table's not the mikdash, it's not the temple, but I'm doing the same things, or at least some of the same things, to prepare my meat as I would if I were preparing my meat for the mikdash. And so there's something implicit in the positioning that's really quite powerful. About half of this masechet, or tractate, deals with issues of ritual slaughter. Ritual slaughter being something that's required in order for even an animal that is considered kosher to be rendered edible for a Jew. No matter whether we're talking about food for my table, having nothing to do with sacrifice, or food for the altar, or anything in between. The first two chapters of Masechet Chulin deals with the who, the with what, the how, and the for whom of slaughter. Allow me to explain. The who, especially if ritual slaughter is something that is pervasive, that relates to all sorts of eating and consumption in Jewish life, the who really matters. Who is permitted to perform the ritual slaughter? With what? What objects, what tools may be used and what tools may not be used? How exactly is this done? And what are things that might be done that would render the slaughtering unfit? And for whom? Are there particular intentions 
that I should have in mind when I'm slaughtering my meat? What if I have intention for pagan idolatry when I slaughter my meat? Does that render the slaughtering unfit? A few things to be aware of. Just two basic overarching concepts about Jewish ritual slaughter, or shechita. One is that there are five different mistakes that a person might make, or categories of mistake, that a person might make while performing shechita, any of which would render the shechita unfit and the food not kosher. One is pausing or hesitating during the incision. That's called shihia. Another is pressing down on the throat of the animal as opposed to moving back and forth with the knife. That's called drasa. Another is digging or burying. If a person tries to perform the shechita in a way in which the knife is actually not visible. Perhaps there's fur or hide or feathers that are covering over the knife so you can't actually see it on the throat of the animal. That's called halada, and that's a problem too. The fourth is slipping or hagrama. Hagrama is really about being able to do the slaughter on the throat of the animal in the right place. There's only a particular section of the throat where it is to be done, and if one does the slaughter outside of that section, the meat is not kosher. And lastly, tearing, or ikur. That's if the esophagus or the trachea is torn during the shechita incision. That's a problem too. That's one overarching concept to be aware of, the five issues that could arise during shechita. Another overarching concept to be aware of is what are the simanim, the parts of the body that have to be cut in order for shechita to be accomplished. The two parts of the body, or simanim, that are in play in the conversation about shechita are the esophagus and the trachea. Now, of course, when you're talking about birds versus four-legged animals, the conversations of how much or which ones need to be cut will be different. But it's important to be aware that these simanim, the esophagus and the trachea, are the significant simanim in shechita. Those are chapters one and two. Chapter three goes into the question, essentially, of what makes an animal or a bird fit for ritual slaughter or not fit for ritual slaughter. And allow me to explain. An animal or a bird, which is a trefa, meaning it is in mortal danger, that may not actually be slaughtered. Ritual slaughter on that, even if it's done without any pausing and without any pressing, etc., etc., does not render an animal kosher. Trefa is a category in the Torah that by definition cannot be made kosher. The other segment of chapter three is figuring out what signs, again, this word simanim, what signs an animal has to have in order to be considered kosher? A domesticated four-legged animal, a wild four-legged animal, a bird, a grasshopper. How can I tell which species are kosher and which are not to even decide what I would ritually slaughter? Chapter four moves on to a really kind of um, anecdotal experience which is what happens when someone has slaughtered an animal 
and finds an unborn fetus inside that animal. What is the status of that fetus from kosher perspective? Does it have to be slaughtered as well? Is it considered already slaughter and automatically kosher? What happens if the animal was partially born before the slaughter happened? That leads directly into chapter five, which is about the Torah prohibition of slaughtering an animal and its offspring on the same day. You can see how thematically chapters four and five would be connected, even though they're different sides of the same coin. And chapter six is really the last chapter that is specifically about slaughter, and it covers the Torah requirement for covering the blood of a wild animal or a bird after slaughtering it. So what's the rest of the Masechet about? The rest of the Masechet continues with offshoots of this issue of eating meat. So in chapter 7, we talk about the prohibition of eating the hip socket or the hindquarters of an animal, Gid Hanasheh. Chapter 8, we talk about what happens if there is a mixture of milk and meat or a mixture of kosher and non-kosher food. What happens then? Chapter 9, the laws of food impurities and animal carcass impurities. Chapter 10, the portion that is meant to be given to the priest from the meat before you eat it, called matnot kihuna, the presence for the priesthood. Chapter 11, related to chapter 10, the shearing of the sheep, the part of the shearing that should be given also to a kohen, to a priest, to help sustain the priests who didn't have jobs that would make them money, but had the job of worship in the temple. And chapter 12, ending on a note of how you probably got one of the animals for slaughter in the first place, the mitzvah of Shiluah HaKen, the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird before taking the baby birds. As you can tell, this masachet is incredibly rich. There are conversations that can be big idea in nature, down to the most refined detail of what kind of hole in a lung of an animal or puncture would render it unfit. But what I'd like to do is read one Mishnah that I think speaks to a big question of the relationship between folk and cultural practices and Jewish law. And that's a Mishnah found in the seventh chapter, the chapter that is called and is about Gid Hanasheh, the hindquarters of the animal. Recall that in the Torah, we have the narrative that describes Yaakov wrestling with the angel in Genesis, Breshit 32. And in this narrative, the angel wounds Yaakov. And the way the Torah describes is that the angel wounds Yaakov on his hip socket, on his yerech. And therefore, the children of Israel do not eat the meat of the hip socket until this very day is the way the Pasuk, the verse reads. And so a Mishnah in Hulin takes up the question as to whether it was immediately after Yaakov was wounded by the angel that they stopped eating the hindquarters, or whether this is something that only starts at Sinai but harkens back to the story of Yaakov. And so we are in chapter 7, Mishnah 6. Noheg b'tehorah ve'eno noheg b'tmeah. The first opinion, the Tanakama, suggests that the prohibition of eating the Gidhanasheh, the hindquarters, only applies to kosher animals, not to non-kosher animals. 
In other words, if one were to eat a non-kosher animal's hindquarters, they would not be punished specifically for eating the hindquarters, they would be punished for eating the non-kosher. Whereas if one were to eat hindquarters of a kosher animal, they would be punished for eating the hindquarters. Rabbi Yehuda disagrees. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, af bitzmeah. No, the hindquarter prohibition applies also for a non-kosher animal. And so if someone were to eat a non-kosher animal's hindquarters, they are liable for both eating non-kosher and also for eating specifically the Gidha Nasheh. Rabbi Yehuda explains his position. Amar Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda said, Vahalo mibne Yaakov ne'esar Gidha Nasheh. Isn't it from the time of Jacob himself that the hindquarters were prohibited? As Breshit Genesis 32 explains, and remember, at that time, they were still allowed to eat non-kosher meat. So imagine Yaakov's family continuing to eat their non-kosher meat, but according to Rabbi Yehuda, from that moment of his wounding forward, they stopped eating the hindquarters. And we should follow that as well. We no longer eat non-kosher meat, but we should maintain the prohibition specifically of eating the hindquarters of non-kosher meat as well, just as Yaakov and his family did. Amrulo, the response to Rabbi Yehuda from those who believe, no, this should only apply to kosher meat. The response is, they said to him, no, no, no. The prohibition of eating the hindquarters wasn't said in Genesis 32. It wasn't said until Sinai. It was merely written into Genesis 32 in order to connect it with that story, which means that really the prohibition of eating hindquarters of an animal comes at the same time as the prohibition of eating non-kosher animals. And therefore, the prohibition of eating hindquarters should only apply when referring to kosher meat. This conversation, this machloket, this argument is fascinating. It's fascinating because it touches on the relationship between the eating practices of our ancestors and the laws about eating practices from our ancestors. Going back to the introduction that we gave to Hulin about the concept of our eating being something that is akin to offering a sacrifice, there's something about that here too. Is eating just a folk practice that people take on and do in different ways? Or is eating highly regulated? And of course, in Judaism, eating is highly regulated, and that's actually part of its holiness. That's part of sanctity. Sanctity, kidusha, actually means separation. To separate, to create boundaries, to create laws around the way we eat and what we eat and how the food is prepared and who's sitting around the table and what food is eaten is actually a way of taking our folk practices, our simple cultural mundane activities and turning them into something that was said at Sinai. And the truth is that both sides of this Mishnah have something to say in that conversation. The Tanakama, the first opinion, suggesting that we would not apply the prohibition of the hindquarters to non-kosher food because this was only given at Sinai, 
is a particular approach that speaks to law or Sinai, I should say, as a Rubicon. Sinai as a moment that changed everything. No matter what you did beforehand, no matter what your wonderful ancestors did, the way we do things now is based on divine writ, on divine law, and a divine law that was given to the whole people at once. Rabbi Yehuda, on the other hand, who sees actually the origins of the requirements to not eat the hindquarters, not from the divine revelation at Sinai, but from a more private divine revelation, and actually from some human initiative as well, in the time of Yaakov, of Jacob and his family, speaks to the relationship between the book of Breshit and the legal sections of the Torah in a manner that offers a sense of continuity. What they did and what we did are on one spectral line. And truth be told, both sides are true to an extent. But the ability to take something like eating, which is simply a human universal, and to view it through the lens of law, in many ways is the contribution that Masechet Chulin makes to our big way of thinking about what Jewish life means. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.